the story that we're going to look at this evening is notable because it appears to bridge the gap between the ancient prose classics and uh, the period of modern folklore. The story of St. Cothen was uh, originally copied down in 1536, probably by someone called David Apieyan Henvin. Uh, Henvin, of course, simply means old man, so we can imagine that he was at least considered an old and wise gentleman in his day. It might be talking about his father. It might be Yeyan who was the Henvin, the old man. But I'm guessing that it was David Apieyan Henvin, so David Apieyan, the old man, who copied or perhaps even wrote or adapted this saint's life in 1536. Usually we find saints' lives in more authoritative sources, usually associated with ecclesiastical uh, settings. And it might be folklore. It might be a story that survives through an, the oral storytelling tradition. There are certainly no copies earlier than this one that we find in 5036. It may be an oral tradition that itself stems from an earlier Latin vita or life of the saint, which is normally the case. So, for example, uh, the life of St. David is uh, a Latin manuscript, as are plenty of other saints' lives. But it has the, the flavour of a folktale. So even though it may have begun its journey as a, a formal biography prepared by the church for one of its saints, for quite a notable saint, one of the abbots of Glastonbury, for example, which means that either the original Latin version, of which I'm guessing was an actual historical source, Either that original Latin version contained all of these elements or, as the story has been filtered through the folk tradition, essentially, it's accrued these folk motifs, these folk effects. Of course, in 1536, we're only a couple of hundred years after that very famous uh, reference to common folk praying to Gwynapneith. So in the middle of the 14th century, it's quite likely that common folk were of certain areas in Wales would still go out and pray and try and honour and be respectful of this wild spirit uh, known as Gwynapneith. Um, the prayer goes simply something like, you who are yonder in the woods, for the love of your mate, allow us to enter into your abode. And as we saw in the very first sessions I ran this year, Gwynapneith is very much a, a wild spirit, a spirit associated with the wild places, and trespassing in his lands is likely to provoke an aggravated response from Gwynapneith. But it appears as if St. Cothen didn't get that memo, because that's essentially what happens in the story. But anyway, I'll read you the story. This is something I've translated myself from the copy of it made in T.H. Parry Williams's Rhoddiaeth uh, Gymraeg. St. Cothen is essentially one of these far-travelling saints. 
he was probably alive during the late, later part of the 6th century, early part of the 7th. Uh, and he's been off around the world. He arrives back in Britain. Uh, he becomes the abbot of Glastonbury. But then he goes off to try and sort of preach to the pagans, to try and convert people to Christianity. He's really turned off by the common folk. He really doesn't like them. So he decides to go off and uh, become a hermit. And it's while he's up some mountain, it might be Glastonbury Tor, we don't know, but while he's up some mountain somewhere, up some hill, he builds himself a hermit cell. And then this happens. And as Cossen was one day in his cell, he heard two men talking about Gwynap Neath, saying that he was the king of Anun. Now, Anun there, the way that Anun is spelt, uh, it's, that's the colloquial or we, what we might say the folk spelling of, of Anun in classical Welsh prose, of course, it's Anoven with the F. And Cossen stuck his head out of his cell and said, Be quiet now, of those there are nothing but devils. So, of course, this is in keeping with how Gwynapneith is presented in Cilwch and Dolwen, for example, in that he's closely associated with the devil and devils and hell. So this is a very Christian perspective on Gwynapneith. Be quiet yourself, they replied. You will be punished by him for certain. And Cothen closed the door. So it appears as if this mortal man is in some way offending Gwynapneith. Soon after, Cochen heard someone outside of his cell door asking if he was in. Then Cochen said, I am who asks. It is I, messenger for Gwynapneith, king of Anun, who has come to ask that you come to the top of the hill to talk with him at half day tomorrow. And Cochen did not go. And the next day, the same messenger came in his half-red, half-blue dress. We'll talk about this uh, colour-coded dress in a moment. To ask Koshen to come to the hill to talk to the king at midday the following day. So he's being summoned, but Koshen did not go. Then the same messenger came for a third time to ask Koshen to come to talk to the king at midday. And if Koshen did not come, he would be worse for it. Fearfully, Koshen got up then and made a flask of holy water and put it on his hip and went up to the top of the hill. And when he came there, he saw the fairest castle he had ever seen and horses and young squires riding on their backs. And they were the finest horses he had ever seen. And he saw a kindly man in one part of the fortress, asking him to come in, saying the king was waiting for his lunch. And Koshen went into the castle. And when he came, the king was sitting in a golden chair. And the king gave Koshen an honourable welcome and asked him to go to the table to eat. And then Koshen said to the king, I will not eat the leaves of the trees. The king said to him, Have you ever seen men dressed finer than these here dressed in red and blue? Koshen said, Their dress is good enough of the kind it is. What kind is that? asked the king. And then Cochlen said, Red is on one side to signify burning, and blue on the other side to signify that it is coldness. And with that Cochlen took out his flask and threw the holy water upon their heads. And with that they went away from his sight until there was not one castle nor anything but green mounds. 
So a simple little story in many ways, but there's a lot in there. I think what we find in many ways is a Christian version of a much older mythology. Now, those of you who have sat on the Magic of Meaning course will know that I use this story quite often as an example of this evolving mythology. Uh, it is, of course, very similar in its underlying structure to the first branch of the Mabinogi. I'm not going to get too caught up in that description because plenty of you are already familiar with the connection between the first branch and the story. So I'm not going to go there in particular, but I'm just going to pick up on a few of the more obvious features that that um, that I don't discuss that often on the, the Magic of Meaning courses, actually. As I've already said, this feels like a folk story. It feels like something that's been passed around in the oral storytelling tradition. It has one very obvious oral storytelling structure in it, which is that there is an episode that repeats three times. So um, Kothen ignores the advice that he should go and talk to Gwynapne three times. That's something that we find in many traditional stories. We find it in the four branches of the Mabinogi, uh, and we find it in many other storytelling traditions as well, this notion of, of three episodes building to a crescendo. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that because there is a close relationship between this story and the first branch of the Mabinogi, this is a Christian story that's obviously drawing on traditional motifs. And we can quite imagine that uh, there would have been a story concerning Gwynapneith that was very similar, but that didn't have the saint in it. This is also essentially the same type of Gwynapneith that we find in Davidap Gwilym's poetry, for example. Someone who's out in the wilds, who comes across Gwynapneith and who is afraid of offending Gwynapneith, uh, just in case Gwynapneith gets annoyed with him and pushes him into a bog pool or uh, leads him down a dark cave or gets him lost in the woods or something. So it's very much in in the vein of this folk character of Gwynapneith. What's interesting about this story, though, is what happens to Kothlen at the court. The main thing that usually draws people's attention in this story is this colour-coded dress or the symbolic significance of how these pagans are dressed. We must remember that Gwynapneith here and his people are representative of the pagans. And, you know, this is a very common feature in saints' lives. We find saints uh, butting heads with pagans littered across um, uh, Christian literature, uh, particularly with these early saints. So it's no surprise to find uh, another saint having another encounter with uh, with pagans. What is peculiar about this story is that Gwynapneith specifically is mentioned because very often the saints are dealing with pagan kings. They're not only dealing with pagan kings, many of the early saints uh, were children to noble parents who were pagans and they were the first generation of Christians in that sense. But here Gwynapneith, the king of Anovn himself, is specifically mentioned, which is uncommon in saints' lives. It's another sign to me that this is far closer to the folk tradition of Wales than, um, than other saints' lives. But back to 
the, the red and the blue. For those of you with an interest in alchemy, of course, there's clearly a notion of bringing polarities together here, not just red and blue, but also fire and water. Uh, this is a part of many alchemical practices across the world, not just in Europe, but uh, the uh, Taoist traditions also refer to Khan and Li, the union of fire and water, giving birth to uh, the, the spiritual soul and so on and so on and all that interesting stuff. I'm not sure if that's what we've got going on here, but it is interesting to find a Christian saint commenting on not just the specific ceremonial dress of pagans at this time, but interpreting the symbolic colours as if there is a broader cultural context that's perhaps lost to us now, but that's hinted at in this story, whereby a feature of pagan culture was this notion of interpreting that there was hidden knowledge that needed interpreting before it could be understood, that you needed to consider what was being shown to you and understand it and therefore receive the knowledge uh, that, that the pagans were interested in. And in the St. Cotlin story, of course, this little interpreting game is presented as the the saint in many ways outwitting or outfoxing or being more intelligent. I say that not just because it feels like it's a challenge that, you know, this wild spirit Gwynapanid is challenging the mortal to, to answer the question correctly, but also because it's the second of these challenges or tests. The first test is, of course, the food. Gwynapanid presents this this hermit who has probably been living quite an ascetic lifestyle, living on water and cress and leeks and, uh, you know, wild herbs and not really eating extravagantly in any way and presenting him with this amazing feast. And St. Cochlen essentially saying, no, this feast is nothing but an illusion. So this notion that St. Cochlen is perceptive and wily enough to see through the tricks of the pagans and the tricks of Gwynapanid in particular. And that the interpretation of the, the colour-coded clothing is part of the same theme, part of the same strand. In terms of the broader tradition, there isn't much that we can say about these special colours. We can think of other opposite colours in the Welsh tradition. We can think of the red and the white dragon, that we find in the story of, well, several stories, but, you know, the story of Llyd and Llyfelis being one of them and various other versions of that same story where the red and the white dragon are interpreted as being crucial to the ability of a king to build a tower. They're also mentioned as symbols or avatars for the Welsh and English nations, different ways of interpreting these coloured dragons. So we have these opposites, this notion of coloured opposites in the Welsh tradition, but not specifically red and blue. My own guess is that this does have something to do with the Tulwith Teg, with the fair with the fair folk, but I can only say it's a guess because the only other mention there is of red and blue being associated with the Tulwith Teg funnily enough, is in the story about the physicians of Motherwai. 
Now, it's not in the story itself, but the story of the physicians of Mudvai is set at Llyn of Anbach, the lake of, of Anbach on Manidi, uh, in the northwest of the Brecon Beacons. Llyn of Anbach is the lake from which the fairy bride appears. And interestingly enough, there are two streams that feed the lake, one being a Guterlas and one being a Gutergoch, the blue gutter or the blue stream and the red run of water. And so we have a red and a blue stream that feed the lake from which the fairy appears. Now, I can't say explicitly that there is definitely a connection there, but I think it's intriguing that that red and blue streams are associated with a, a, an immensely famous lake from which the fairy bride appears, and of course, which many local folk would go on a pilgrimage to in August. That's part of the tradition regarding the lake on Manizdi, um, that people would go up to see a figure, a mythological figure or a, a spirit associated with the lake on a particular day and to make offerings. So definitely a special lake in the Welsh tradition with red and blue streams associated with it. And here we have the same colour coding associated with essentially the Tolwith Teg once again. I don't know if there's anything there, but that's the only other place I can think of red and blue being mentioned in any way associated with the Tolwith Teg. Just to come back to uh, Gwynapnid and St Cotlin, just to finish off here. I'm very interested in this story, not only because it's, uh, expresses a very similar underlying structure to the first branch of the Mabinogi, of which you can learn more about on the Magic of Meaning course. So if you want to know more, you'll have to join the course. But also because it bridges the medieval and the modern period, literally, you know, the beginning of the 16th century was literally when the the modern period is is being birthed, is is coming about. It's when we begin to see um, the foundations of modern uh, Britain and modern life in general in Europe being laid down. It also bridges these two periods in the Welsh tradition of the medieval Gwynapneith and the Gwynapneith of folklore. Of course, we have earlier texts which talk about Gwynapneith in a folk sense in Davidap Gwilym. But this is the first clear story in many ways that we have in uh, an almost folk setting. So it's interesting in that sense, it bridges those two periods, but it also bridges the relationship between Christianity and paganism in Wales. As I've mentioned in several other talks I've given over the years, my own take is that Christianity made a point of borrowing folk traditions and presenting its own saints and presenting its own story, uh, its own underlying mythology, presenting Christianity essentially in terms that were understandable to common folk. 